this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i'm your host g sampat the one year anniversary of the ongoing war in ukraine saw a number of related developments beyond the battle zone first came the visit of president joe biden to kiev where he reiterated the motto of as long as it takes for american support to the ukrainian war effort underlining that the us is in it for the long haul then president vladimir putin in his state of the nation speech announced that russia was within quotes suspending its participation in the new start treaty start as in strategic arms reduction treaty the last of the major treaties in place to curb an unfettered nuclear arms race and then china released what has been variously described as a peace plan and a position paper on bringing an end to the ukraine war so what are the implications of each of these developments for the war raging on the ground in ukraine will china's peace plan be taken seriously by the west will biden's domestic opponents allow his administration to funnel endless billions into this war we explore all these questions in this episode of infocus and we have with us stanley johnny the hindu's international affairs editor stanley thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me sambhat once again so stanley let's start with putin's announcement in his state of the nation speech that russia is suspending its participation in the new start treaty can you give us a quick overview of what this treaty is all about i mean it seems to be quite an old one going back to to 20, 2010 i think if i'm not mistaken then what does it mean for russia to suspend participation in it so uh, sambat new start is basically this is part of a host of nuclear arms control treaties that were envisioned during the cold war time so uh, the talks between the superpowers the erstwhile soviet union and the united states to control limit their strategic arms that actually goes back to the 1960s when johnson called for talks and then when nixon was the president they started the salt talks strategic arms limitation talks between nixon and brushnev right and then gorbachev and uh, reagan they started again arms reduction control negotiations between themselves and in 1991 uh, the start agreement was signed between the two superpowers and this expired in 2011 uh, and then uh, the obama administration as well as dmitry medvedev was the president at that time of russia so they renegotiated start and and then they uh, signed the new start agreement which is the current agreement this this was actually to expire in 2021 but after biden became president president biden and president putin they agreed to extend it by five more years so under the current terms the new start agreement is to expire in 2026 but then now we know that president putin has suspended russia's participation in the agreement so practically you know this is uh, you know it's part of that cold war arms control architecture new start though new new start was signed in 2011 it is it goes back to the cold war period its origins and what it tries to do is to put a cap on the strategic arms of both superpowers both the united states and russia so as per new start uh, you know th- these countries have to cap their 
nuclear warheads at 15,550. Uh, and then the nuclear uh, ballistic missiles uh, or heavy bombers, nuclear bombers at 700, and the launchers at 800. And they also allow short notice inspections, uh, you know, 18 times a year, and they should exchange data, etc., uh, etc. Et so this treaty, basically, this has different clauses for inspection, uh, limiting their, uh, limiting the deployment of nuclear arsenals, nuclear warheads, nuclear uh, launchers, etc., etc., uh, to make sure that uh, the United States and Russia do not exceed the cap, right? And the cap is, and, and as of now, the United States has more than 1,400 nuclear deployed uh, nuclear warheads, and Russia has close to 1,550 nuclear warheads as of now. But the problem is that now that Russians, Russia has suspended its participation, I think there are two reasons, two specific reasons. One is that this nuclear control uh, this uh, you know uh, arms control architecture has been unraveling for quite some time. So we always see when we read about New Start that this is the last uh, arms control uh, treaty between the United States and Russia, right? Why it is the last? You know because this has been crumbling for quite some time. Why it is the last? Because in 2002, when George W. Bush was the president, the United States unilaterally withdrew from the ABMT agreement, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. In 2019, when Trump was the president, Trump withdrew the United States, again unilaterally from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Force Agreement. And in 2020, the United States again withdrew itself unilaterally from the Open Skies Agreement. Right. So when, and, and now the Russians uh, have withdrawn themselves, like suspended their participation again unilaterally from the New START Agreement. So when President Putin looks at it, on the one side, the nuclear arms control architecture has been unraveling because the United States, ever since 2002, has been withdrawing itself unilaterally from the existing nuclear control army architecture. So the Russians did the same thing now. And then secondly, you have the Ukraine crisis, right? You have the Ukraine war, where the Americans, where the West is helping Ukraine to defeat Russia. So from Russia's point of view, on the one side, the arms control architecture has been collapsing, and on the other side, now the relationship between the West and Russia at a historical low in the post-Cold War period, and at a time when the West is trying to defeat Russia in Ukraine, Russia cannot continue to respect the arms control treaty, which you yourself are not respecting. That's what the Russian line is. I think this explains why the, the Russians suspended their participation in the agreement. Right. I mean, in, in, I think Moscow, in terms of trying to justify the suspension from this agreement, has, has used a very curious phrase. It says, geopolitical realities that underpin the signing of the treaty have changed. So, what has changed basically uh, is the hostility of the West towards Russia and, of course, the Ukraine war. These are the two main uh, realities which have changed, right? I mean, is that what they are referring to? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yes, yes. Because when the agreement was signed, whether it is in 1991 or you know, towards the end of the Cold War or in 2011. So there was the geopolitical reality both time was that first was to manage the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, the, the last period of the Soviet Union, and then manage the relationship between Russia and the United States. So there was some kind of cooperation between these two sides. But that cooperation is non-existent at this point of time. 
Right. Also, I think Putin mentioned in his speech, I think that the agreement has become a little one-sided favoring the US. I think one of the points which came up was that while you can inspect each other's nuclear arsenals, etc., you know, the US can inspect Russia's nuclear weapons facilities, etc. But America, which has a lot of stockpile nuclear weapons in the NATO countries such as France and Britain, those are not available for inspection. So there are certain parts of the American arsenal which are not accessible to the Russia to the same extent the US can inspect uh, Russian weapons. Isn't that kind of an asymmetrical kind of a thing? That's what the Russians are saying. Yes, that's what the Russians are saying. And on the other side, the Americans are saying that uh, for the last two, three years, the Russians are not letting the inspection to go on. Inspections were suspended during the COVID period. And after, I mean, once COVID was uh, reined in, they were supposed to start negotiations on opening up inspections. But the Russians are saying that, yes, uh, you know, um, anyway, open skies agreement has collapsed. The Russians cannot send, they, they cannot monitor American strategic uh, sites from the top. And, Amer- and Americans also cannot do that in Russia at this point of time. And then the Russians say that, yes, we may get, we might get access to American nuclear sites in the United States, but not in NATO. Whereas the Americans are saying that the Russians are blocking inspections in inside Russia. So they say that the, this even this agreement was collapsing. And I think, but the, this has been going on, but I think the trigger was, uh, you know, uh, the war in Ukraine, because Putin has effectively linked the crisis with cooperation with the West. Or rather, he he sees that, you know, the Americans have said that they wanted to weaken Russia, right? Uh, Lloyd Austin has say, said that on record. And President Biden has said that Putin doesn't have the moral right to continue to be in the office. Right. Coming to President Biden's uh, statements, you know, in, he, he visited Kiev uh, on the eve of the one-year anniversary and then uh, there was this entire rallying cry, you know, led by Biden and his uh, team of as long as it takes, you know, which sort of uh, kind of seems to want to communicate that the scale of American military and financial aid to Ukraine is going to be uh, around as long as the war takes. You know, some, there have been some debates about the staying power, you know, about how Russia apparently has the longest staying power because it can sustain bigger losses, etc. Whereas the West, especially Europe, may not have the stomach for it. But now they are saying, uh, Biden has said that they will support Ukraine as long as it takes. But do you think it's really sustainable because $100 billion have already been sent or committed and there are domestic pressures as well from lawmakers on the far right in the US. So is this as long as it takes just a symbolic thing or is it really sustainable in practical terms? So in all the public events, uh, Western leaders are saying that they would continue to support Ukraine as long as it takes within courts. But at the same time, there are reports in Western media. For example, Washington Post had a story last week in which Bill Burns and others had uh, sounded out the Ukrainians that the continued assistance uh, would face challenges going forward. And on the other side, domestic uh, political, uh, I think, climate would be a big thing because all these countries in the United States or Europe, they are democracies, they are going to have elections. There could be regime changes. Other parties might come back to power, even in the United States, right? If the Republicans win the White House uh, in 2024, nobody knows what will happen uh, because the Republicans, some Republicans are already questioning this continued assistance of uh, money and weapons to the Ukrainians. So there are domestic angle. And also the question is, who is 
much more deeply committed to this cause. Of course, Ukrainians are committed to their because for them this is an existential fight, and for Russians also this is that's how they look at it. So the Russian calculation is that we are committed to this conflict, to to the Ukraine war, much deeper than the West is committed to Ukraine. That's how they look at it. So this is a fundamental question with the West and the Ukrainians would be facing going forward, because the the, the challenge before Ukraine is that. would there be able to you know survive or continue to resist to the russians if uh, the supplies from the west stop so that is the question they have to ask themselves and the west the problem is that uh, this is this is dependent a lot on the domestic political situation realities also so we can't say for sure whether the west would continue to support ukraine as long as it takes maybe that's what the russian betters we don't know so i think this might get a bit complicated going forward and this is the problem the ukrainians are also facing because if the war goes on if putin is ready to fight for a longer period because the one year is already gone the russians had in made uh, the kind of uh, military gains which many people had expected them to make including people in the west right the western intelligence had also uh, predicted russians to take a quick victory that didn't happen but then the west came up with sanctions and support for the ukrainians military support for ukraine and sanctions on russia which means weaken russia economically through sanctions and strengthen ukraine militarily through military aid i think the military aid part has been kind of successful until now because the ukrainians have successfully resisted russians in certain points certain parts of the battlefield whereas the sanctions of course it had hurt russians but did it have any deterring effect on russia's war effort no it didn't right so putin as of now is ready to fight a long battle so this is a this poses challenges for both ukraine as well as their allies in the west right so is there i mean we we've spoken earlier about why uh, for the us this war is so important in terms of weakening uh, russia and so on in a changing uh, geopolitical scenario with china coming up Uh, strongly uh, on the other hand so is there a bipartisan consensus in the us of in terms of supporting ukraine till russia is defeated or is this a more a case of the war being important primarily for the biden administration and not so much for the republicans and if that is the case why is this so much more important for the biden administration this war pursuing this war supporting ukraine i don't think there is a bipartisan consensus in the united states on russia definitely i can't see that because uh, you see you look at the republican side there are growing number of republicans and even you know on the other side on the republican commentators they they increasingly question the biden administration's uh, approach towards this conflict so biden had taken a much more hawkish position uh, towards russia and ukraine which is very clear because biden's narrative is that you know this is a battle between autocracies and democracies so for biden it is imperative to weaken russia to defeat russia uh, so that uh, his you know he said he he said from the very beginning that democracy would take the center stage of his foreign policy so he has come up with this uh, uh, narrative so uh, i think how the biden administration looks at is that looks at is you know for for biden who is a cold warrior 
So the world is divided into democracies and autocracies. And uh, Putin uh, and uh, to a certain extent the Chinese, the Russians and the Chinese represent the other side of the aisle. So uh, it is important to uh, you know weaken Russia in Ukraine. If the United States fail to do that, you know on the one side Russia, uh, if Russia gets what it wants in Europe, it would emerge if it emerges stronger. So that would set a bad precedent for China also. And China is your most important geopolitical rival at this point of time. And the Biden administration also sees that uh, since the Russians failed to meet their objectives quickly in the initial weeks of the war, that itself opens an opportunity for the United States. See, the American soldiers are not fighting. There are no body bags coming from Ukraine. Ukrainians are getting killed. It is the Ukrainian infrastructure that's being bombed, right? Yeah, American soldiers may not be fighting on the ground, uh, Stanley, but we all uh, saw that Seymour Hersh report which said that it is American manpower and resources which blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, which sort of directly hurt uh, Germany, one of their the main fronts, I mean, allies in the Ukraine war. Yeah, but it hurts America strategically, right? That's what I am saying. American soldiers are not fighting on the battlefield, not fighting directly with the Russians. And on the other side, they blew up. I mean, if Seymour Hersh's report is correct, they blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Not even the Germans are complaining about it. They are not able to complain. I mean, it is a at the end of the day, it is a German pipeline too. And the pipeline uh, was supposed to bring in cheap gas from across the Baltic Sea from the Russians. And uh, 49% of the Nord Stream company, 49% stake of the Nord Stream company were owned by European countries. But none of the European countries are protesting uh, the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline. That it, it not just destroyed the pipeline, it also leaked some, what, 300,000 tons of methane into the Baltic Sea, which has created an environmental catastrophe. All these European countries who are talking about ecological disasters do not utter a word about the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline. So it clearly serves the American interest, right? So, I mean, it's, it defies our conventional uh, understanding of the conflict when it comes to... So, so, the United States, they are not fighting a direct battle with the Russians. But still, for the Biden administration, it is, uh, they, they have an opportunity. They see an opportunity to weaken Russia by strengthening Ukrainian counteroffensive or defenses inside Ukraine on the one side. Secondly, the war is also... Uh, you know, uh, prompt the war has prompted European countries to cut their ties, energy ties, economic ties, completely on Russia, and uh, Nord Stream pipeline is gone. Uh, so, which means Europe has grown more dependent on the United States for not just for uh, security reasons, which has been there since the Cold War days, also for economic reasons, also for natural gas, also for fuel. For for the so for the Biden administration, this serves some strategic purposes. I think that's how they look at it. Right. Coming to the third uh, big development around uh, this time, uh, the one-year anniversary, it is uh, China's peace proposal. I mean, uh, we've had some kind of muted reactions uh, from the West towards it. So what exactly does this peace proposal or position paper say? Does it say something new from what uh, we know of their positions? And what is its significance? So uh, with regard to conflict resolution, the paper doesn't offer much. But the paper lays out clearly what China's position is with regard to the conflict. So the Chinese position is that China says territorial integrity and sovereignty have to be respected, which means indirectly they are saying 
the Russians have violated Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty, which is right, which is factual. The Russians have violated. But at the same, the Chinese say that they oppose this block politics, like they were referring to NATO. So uh, by doing that, they are uh, you know, endorsing Russia's security concerns. Russia's security concerns is that they were forced to begin this war because of NATO's endless expansion towards the east. So they, they dismiss the block politics. And the Chinese also say that unilateral sanctions should be withdrawn. So only UN Security Council approved sanctions should be imposed on countries. Otherwise, you know, countries are misusing their economic powers. So basically, the Chinese are slamming uh, the American and the European sanctions on Russia. And China is also opposed to nuclear weapons. China says China opposes uh, nuclear weapons, uh, which is a warning to the Russians that this is a no-go area. That's what Chinese are saying. So practically, China says Ukraine's sovereignty has to be respected. Territorial integrity has to be respected. While at the same time, China says the sanctions on Russia should be withdrawn. And it also says Russia's security concerns should be respected, which means Ukraine has to declare neutrality somehow, right? NATO's expansion should be checked. So this is the Chinese line is. But China doesn't offer any concrete proposals to bring the conflict to an end. China calls for ceasefire. But how will a ceasefire come into effect? Right? You need to offer something. You need to give something to both parties. That is not there. So what, what is the point of uh, so what is the point of this entire proposal? Is it some kind of a signaling which is doing because China seems to be caught in some kind of a bind here, right? Because of the Ukraine war. I mean they want uninterrupted trade with Europe without any disruptions, but at the same time they know that uh, the Americans are going to come after it at some point. So it feels compelled to sort of be on Russia's side in the conflict. And it's sort of trying to balance both sides through this kind of a plan. Is that what is happening here? Yeah. So we don't know whether in the next stage of uh, now they have laid out their position. So uh, President Xi Jinping is expected to travel to Moscow in the coming months. So we don't know whether in the next stage the Chinese would come up with concrete proposals uh, to bring in a ceasefire so that we have to wait and see. So we also don't know whether the Chinese are expanding their push for peace before arming the Russians, because the Americans are now claiming that the Chinese would arm the Russians eventually. So maybe, I mean, whether uh, they are actually planning to do that or before they are planning to do that, are they trying to expand the possibility uh, to push for peace? So these are the questions uh, we need to get answers only in the future. But if you look at the conflict, if you look at the Chinese position of the conflict, that is also very complicated. The position paper China has released, I think more or less the Indians would also agree with this. The Indians are also, they also, uh, Indians also call for territorial integrity, sovereignty. Indians are also opposed to the use of the nuclear weapons. But at the same time, you see the Indians are also abstaining from the votes. They are not supporting the Western uh, push to punish Russia. They are not, they haven't joined the sanctions. The Chinese also haven't joined the sanctions. Right? Indians also say that sanctions should come from the UN Security Council, not unilateral sanctions. So there are a lot of similarities between the Indian and Chinese positions with regard to the Ukraine conflict. But China, I think China has much more in stake right? because China also sees that, uh, in my opinion, the war itself challenges the US-led, US-dominated world order, which is, you know, China with its own global ambitions, which is a welcome development for China. This is the first time a country is militarily challenging the post-Soviet security architecture in Europe and that Russia is doing that. 
So that is one thing from the Chinese point of view. And at the same time, the question is going forward, how the Chinese would look at it? Would the Chinese, because the Americans and the Western countries are now deeply involved in the war. So it started off uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, and now it has turned out to be a proxy war between NATO and Russia that is taking place within the boundaries of Ukraine. And the West is uh, West continues to supply uh, very advanced offensive weapons, including, as we discussed in the last podcast, leopard tanks, uh, you know, challengers, uh, armed, uh, armed vehicles, and uh, tank killers, etc., uh, etc., et missile defense systems, Patriot missile defense systems, etc., etc. So, would China accept uh, Russia's permanent weakening? So the question is uh, whether the, whether the Chinese would think that uh, you know structural weakening of Russia would help their cause. If they think that it doesn't help their cause, in the next stage the Chinese might uh, uh, you know come forward to arm the Russians, and that would change the whole uh, the dynamics of the whole game. So a lot would depend on what Chinese strategic assessment would be. But as of now, what we can see is that the Chinese are trying to bring the conflict to an end, at least through some ceasefire. So we have to see whether Xi Jinping, when he travels to Moscow, would make any concrete proposals, you know, that would kind of uh, uh, induce both sides to end fighting and start negotiations. Right. That was a really a fascinating insight into what could possibly be uh, China's thinking uh, on this war. Stanley, I think one big takeaway is that China would not uh, want to see Russia weakened beyond a point uh, because it keeps talking about this Cold War mentality when it refers to which is, which is sort of taken as a quote for a global security architecture where the U.S. is supremely dominant, you know. So I think it would not really be comfortable with that continuing endlessly. So it would want, I think, Russia to sort of, as you said, it Russia the first time it is challenging that kind of an architecture in in a, in a very strategically significant domain, which is Europe. So it wouldn't really want to see Russia weaken beyond a point. Now coming back to actually on ground, can you quickly sum up what the situation is? Uh, on the ground in Ukraine because last time we spoke or we discussed about an impending late winter or a spring offensive from either side. So has that really uh, happened in any way? Uh, where is the momentum right now in the war zone? So the Ukrainians say that the offensive has already begun uh, in certain pockets, but I think that the full-scale offensive hasn't started yet because Russia has mobilized 500,000 troops. They haven't moved into action. And there are some focused fighting and positional fighting uh, is going on across the front line, along the front line. So the front line is now stretching into some 1,000 kilometers long, right? From the outskirts of Kharkiv to the outskirts of Kherson in the south. So if you look at the front line, you know, the fighting is going on. The major fighting is going on in Bakhmut, where Wagner as well as the Russian troops are making advances. Because even uh, last week they took a settlement. So they are trying to surround Bakhmut and cut off, except one highway, they are controlling all the supply routes. So, but the Ukrainians are resisting. They are resisting because they are expecting uh, more weapons from the West in the coming months. So they are trying to deny Russia a major victory, and they think that once they get more weapons, their position would be strengthened. So Bakhmut, Ukraine is in a bad position. And in the south, in Ukledar, the Russians try to take Ukledar, and they failed to take Ukledar, but fighting is going on. Ukledar is also in Donetsk. 
and in the north side of in the northwestern side of Donetsk, where in Izium, again fighting is going on, and in Saporizhia and in Saporizhia, the Russians are actually uh, pushing through the front line, and in Kherson, positional batting is going on. So focused fighting is going on at certain flashpoints along the front line. Major fighting is the concentrated battle is going on in Bakhmut, where the Russians are making advances. And a major Russian offensive is awaited. When the Russians would do it, we don't know. The Ukrainian and Western intelligence expected the Russians to start their offensive before February 24th, the anniversary. They were wrong. The Russians didn't do that. So uh, we don't know when they are planning to do it. But I, I definitely believe that a major offensive is coming because otherwise they wouldn't be mobilizing these many troops. And, you know, as of now, from a Russian point of view, they don't have, I don't think, you know, any, there would be any major push for peace because uh, both sides, both the Russians and the Westerners, uh, you know, the Ukrainians backed by the West, both sides, they look at the current status of the war and then they think that they can make further gains. So the Russians want to take more territories and the Ukrainians, Ukrainians want to launch a counteroffensive. Because the Ukrainians see in the southwestern, the Russian position is weak in the Saporizhia. So if Ukraine takes Saporizhia back, they can practically destroy Putin's land bridge, land bridge which is connecting Donbass to Crimea. So whereas in, in, in Donetsk and Lugansk, the Ukrainian position is weak, where the Russians think that they can take more territories. So the war is expected to uh, go on. So that is, that is the current situation. Right. One year later, the war is expected to go on. I mean, there has not been much change on the front lines in recent weeks and a new major offensive is uh, around the corner while uh, in the big picture, there are uh, sort of movements and sort of maneuverings happening in terms of talks between Russia, China and of course, the Western allies among themselves as well. Thank you so much, Stanley, for uh, talking to us, for explaining so well the various dimensions of the conflict as we sort of conclude one year of tracking uh, this invasion. Forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Samba. Thanks. Thanks very much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.